Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the 34th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today we've got Abby Fuller. She's a documentarian. She's shot her own feature, and now she's got an episode of Chef's Table premiering on Netflix very soon. I loved this interview. I thought it was really incredible. Again, just a testament to going out and shooting things yourself. And I've always wanted to do documentary. I was super curious about it. I ended this interview really wanting to do it. I think you're going to feel the same. Yeah, it's a really, really fun interview. I mean, she's done a a ton of other stuff, too, for TV that you will hear about. Yeah. But first, Lauren, what have you been working on lately? So I'll make it real quick because I want to get to this interview. But I've, you know, been doing posts on this show that's going to come out in June. Uh, Miss 2059 is the name of it. But more excitingly, tomorrow I have finally have my first pitch for my TV show. Hey! Resonance. Yeah. So uh, we're pitching to this production company, this woman that um, she was at AMC and she like discovered uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. She brought to the network and she left the network and now is making her own shows that she's selling uh, to the network. And they read our pilot and they really liked it. And so tomorrow we are going in and we've like practiced our pitch a bunch of times and it's I don't know it's hard it's like a 20 minute pitch so it's this like long document that we literally have printed out and we hold in our hands and it says like Oren says this part then we show this slide then Julie says this part then we show this slide (gasps) that reminds me I didn't email the people to see if they have a tv we can plug into even if they say that they do they will fuck it up guaranteed well what should I bring some stuff to be able to connect my laptop to their system or should I just like show them off the laptop I would bring every single this is a great question because literally I don't know what the issue is. Every single pitch I've ever, ever been a part of, there's been an issue. A technical issue. Literally every single one. And we would have a tech guy there. So bring every single cord, have it on your laptop ready to go, and have printouts. And then don't Mm. sweat it. You know what I mean? Because it's going to, something will be weird. You think we should have a printout to leave with them? Or just in case something's not working that we can show? I would say, think about it. Because it's not the, it, it's just an image. Like we'll have a picture of a guy and we'll mm-hmm. talk about the male character, you know? It's not a terrible idea just to have them as, a, as an analog backup. The thing is, as soon as you hand somebody a packet, they will look at that mostly and they will flip through it quickly. Right. No, we, I, we're definitely not handing them the packet. It, do, it doesn't even make sense without us talking about it because right. it's literally just pictures. So yeah, well, I'll let you know how it turns out. I mean, it's kind of a friendly, the development person we're pitching to is uh, knows our producer pretty well. So it's a friendly room. Um, it's our first time and hopefully it goes well. And it, you know, there's, a, it, it's all about it feeling polished and we're getting the information out sharply and not mumbling or repeating ourselves too much while trying to make it seem like we're just talking about our show and having a good time and reading bullet points off a piece of paper. Sure. Well, so we'll see how it goes. Break a leg. We can't wait to hear about what happens next. Thanks. What um, have you been working on lately? Yeah, so I had a pretty busy week. I shot uh, a bunch of sketches. For wrapping College Humor? Up, yeah, College Humor and Cracked.com. Oh, cool. Oh, right, right. You yeah, super that. fun. I had a great time. I wrapped up the upfront stuff and uh, I'm right in the middle of developing new stuff, signing contracts on other stuff, blah, blah, blah. Busy week. But the thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, on Mother's Day, which was a little over a week ago now, uh, I cracked my elbow, fractured it, had to go to the hospital, the whole thing. And, you know, immediately when you have an injury like that, you think, well, shoot, 
as a freelancer, what am I going to do? Can I work these next three days? I had three shoot days that week coming up. Am I going to be on painkillers? What do you do? What do you think about? So, Oren, have you ever had like a an injury like that? That or or any sort of life event? Of course, you have had life events that you've had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had an injury that would keep you from working? No, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I filled in for a director that was like passing a kidney stone on the day of the shoot mm-hmm. and he had to go to the ER and they called me and they're like, hey, can you come direct? No, I just I don't get injured that much. And even if I'm sick, I usually go to set and yeah. people. I don't know if that bothers people because there's like a sick person sneezing and stuff. But yeah, no, I to me, like shoot days are really that's it. really important. Yeah. That's what you have to do. Yeah, I think when you're sick, adrenaline just kind of kicks in, especially on a single day shoot. You can tough it out unless you're really sick. You've got to be like basically in the bathroom all the time. So when I first cracked my elbow, there yeah, I had that sinking feeling of like, oh no, I think I probably messed this up pretty bad. Your elbow or in the my, shoot? My elbow. And the next thought is like, oh, I have to work. And luckily, I think a director's lifestyle, like you can't, I'm in, I'm in like this, like, um, like a RoboCop like, type <laughs> arm race. I think it's very it's telling awesome. what, uh, what cultural reference people pull. It's, it's, I've heard RoboCop Elysium. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, Iron Man have all been referenced, mm. but yeah, like kind of a, a futuristic kind of looking brace, but, um, when I went to the ER, they just throw you in like one of those thermal splints. So it's basically like a little makeshift shift cast and like a cheap sling. And that was the first couple of days because I couldn't get to the orthopedist until I'd wrapped on everything. And being a director, it's kind of not that bad. Like I wasn't hauling my own gear. Fortunately, the pain wasn't bad, so I wasn't stoned or anything. So, you know, it, it was totally workable. It was totally fine. But I think any other position... You gotta have both functioning arms or you are in trouble. You can't DP. Certainly you can't light anything, boom up anything, perform, like maybe produce. Yeah, I mean, I guess if uh, drive, <laughs> you could probably drive. Uh, so, so technically you're not supposed to. That's the worst part actually. What? Is that, so yes, certainly people drive one-handed all the time they're texting or they're rolling down the window or they're just relaxing see that's what i was going to say when you're driving with one hand i mean you need to be texting while you're driving so you're pretty much just you have to use your knees yeah sure sure yeah but you know i'm i'm pretty good touch typer so it's not so bad um but uh you're you're not supposed to drive actually because if you get in an accident the liability is 100 percent on you Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I thought you get an accident on purpose and then you try to get the person who you ran into <laughs> to pay for your You're arm. Like, oh, no. But I was already in a sling. Yeah, very prepared. <laughs> um, well, cool. Yeah. So I got five more weeks of this. It's not so bad. Mm-hmm. I can type now, which is nice. But yeah, if you have a, a story about something that kept you from making it to set, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me a tweet at Just Shoot It Pod, and we'll share your stories on the air. Let's get to this Abby interview because it is super dope. Yep. Hello, Abby. How you doing? Good. So excited to have you. Excited to be here. I think uh, you may be the longest from first contact to booking. 
on our Thank podcast. You. On our podcast. That's a yeah. big deal. A big deal. And it's because you've been traveling all over the world. True. Yeah. You were in Berlin. Berlin. Or w- yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we even first connected before I went to Slovenia. Yeah, I think so. So I was in Slovenia. And when was that? When did you go to Slovenia? In the fall. Was there yeah. in October. Is and this you, all Northern Hemisphere traveling? I have no idea where Slovenia. Well, is. I was in. I went to Cuba, just for fun. Is that but, that's north of the equator, right? Oh. Yeah, yeah, actually. Do you think South... Um, no, you're right. Like people that live in the Southern Hemisphere only travel in the Southern Hemisphere? Or is the Northern Hemisphere just clearly better? No, I, I mean, I was in Argentina. Yeah, there you go. Okay. One. Um, Peru and Colombia. I just don't go past Ecuador. I don't and leave then Los Philippines Angeles. Philippines. I've been to Palm Springs. I've been to Catalina. All in LA County. It's great. Yeah. So, so, Abby, what... Uh, okay. <laughs> what took you uh, to all of these remote locations? Well, for Slovenia and Berlin, I was both there shooting Chef's Table for Netflix. Cool. The other locations were mostly just hiking and scuba diving and for fun. Sounds great to me. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, so this show so, is not about fun. Yeah, yeah. Let's no, talk about no Chef's fun. Table. <laughs> yeah, about so Chef's fun. Table is a documentary series on Netflix about tables, right? Yes. And chefs. Mostly <laughs> tables. Mostly tables. And it's a documentary series. It's kind of like basically, I always say it's like Jiro Dreams of Sushi, but the TV show, basically. Well, that it's based. So David Gelb. Mm-hmm. David, who's the creator of Chef's Table, directed Jiro. So Jiro became very popular on Netflix. David and Brian McGinn, who is the other creator, pitched the show to Netflix and based off of the success of Jiro, basically got the deal to make the show. And then they partnered uh, David and Brian with the showrunner Andrew Freed at Boardwalk Pictures. That's killer. So, and, uh, you know, so we have been aware of each other for kind of a long time. Your DP on your first feature mm-hmm. is Bobby Lamb, who we've mentioned on the show a couple of times, but as an old friend of mine, you're our first documentarian on the show. Oh, wow. Exciting. Yeah. And yeah. I like, represent. You non-fiction. represent. Non-fiction. Yeah, nonfiction yeah. for real. We, we've talked about unscripted stuff, like reality yeah, stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. That's, that's the junior leagues. Yeah. Junior leagues, yeah. And uh, is also scripted. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> the, that's yeah. the biggest thing about it. Yeah. Like you're not like pitching <coughs> jokes to the chef that you're interviewing. No, but you have a format, right? What's the, qu- what's the question? Sure, Am I sure. pitching jokes and do we have a format? <laughs> yeah. No. Is there. <laughs> yeah. Before you, <laughs> before you start shooting, do you have an idea of what the episode is going to be? Of course. Of course. Yeah. No. I mean, chef's table. The cool thing about Chef's Table is that each episode is seen as a film. That we refer to them as films, we treat them as films. When I go off to shoot my film, it's treated in a way where I have really full creative autonomy mm-hmm. in pre-production and then in the field. And how long are they? The to- the running times can range. The minimum is 42 minutes and the maximum is an hour, but we usually mm-hmm. are about 45 minutes is a sweet spot. That's cool. So that's cool. You're not even really tied to an exact runtime. No. That's incredible. 
it's the best job. It's the best job for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I love it. It's it's something that I feel very privileged to be able to work on the show. We have a great, really great team, uh, mm-hmm. both in production and in post. But also, it's I mean, I get to travel and eat. Let's you know, sure. and make a film where I get to use drone operators and Steadicam and work with the best chefs in the world in exotic locations while, you know, holding a monitor in one hand and a glass of wine from like Bordeaux in the other. It doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever gotten uh, food poisoning? No, no. I mean, we're talking about the best restaurants in the world, so. Well, I went to a pretty good Italian restaurant in Thailand and uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I got pretty sick. So that's incredible. So let's back up a little bit because I I have a million questions about Chef's Table. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about how you first got interested in documentary and then how you got into it. I have have no understanding of this world. So Mm. I think that there are probably a lot of people out there curious, right, about like the whole process. Less about making it, but more about yeah. like entering into that scene, maybe. I mean, should we just sure. simplify it and ask like how you got the job to direct Chef's Table? That one specifically, or sure. how? Yeah, in the usually, genre? usually the answer will rewind itself back to the beginning. Well, I'll just I'll give all I can answer both. But the the reason I got into documentary filmmaking to start, I went to film school at USC, and after I graduated, there there was like what I saw as kind of two paths. One was this path where I could, after an internship, get a job at, you know, a studio as an executive assistant or development assistant, which is what I saw some peers of mine doing and kind of work your way up that more corporate. And I didn't let, I just knew that wasn't for me. I just wanted to make something. But where would lead you to? Not to directing. Not to directing, exactly. But it just seemed like that was a career path for people who were really ambitious, to who wanted to make things and create things. Or, you know, I had at one point optioned a script that I wrote and originally wanted to do narrative things. That didn't pan out and go anywhere. And I realized in order to make something scripted, you needed a lot more resources than I had, you know, at age 21 coming out of film school. And But to make a documentary, you could get an HVX with a couple P2 cards and basically just go off and shoot it and edit it on Final Cut Pro. And you didn't have any barriers of entry to make a documentary. So literally the reason why I got into it was because it was what I could do to make based on the resources I had at my availability. So I did this film about blind teenagers that I shot in 2009 and took five years to complete I think that was the first Kickstarter I ever heard of. Yeah, we was we were early adopters. Yeah, Wait, so you shot in two thousand nine. You finished in twenty fourteen. Yeah, okay. and then we did the festival circuit in twenty fifteen, and it's it going to finally come out this summer. Ooh, that's oh, wow. exciting! The educational opportunities for blind students today is horrible. They had said that geometry was inappropriate for me because it was too visual and I probably wouldn't do well. They're not given the resources that they need. It's a lot easier to let the students like Karina go. I felt angry because I felt like I should have the right to go to school. And it sucked. It's like, hey, I mean, everyone else is in middle school. So your first doc hasn't even come out yet. Right. You've already done a couple seasons of Chef's Table. Right. That's and crazy. 
countless other projects. You know? Sure, sure. There's yeah, plenty yeah, in yeah. between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's funny to think that you usually, I feel like the stories usually you make something and you get kind of discovered by it, but you still haven't finished that thing that right. you got discovered by. Which I think is valuable for listeners because, you know, we always try to spell out how long the road is. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that you hear the, the fairy tale of like, well, I made this thing and then I premiered at South by and now I directed Fantastic Four. Right. right. But like, you know, here you are doing these incredible things. And sometimes things pan out more slowly than we imagine, right? Like, sure. you're still an overnight success, even though it took you a while for that first film to happen. You know well, I'm mean? still, I'm still hustling. Sure, of course, you know, of course. I'm still at a very. We're you in know, Abby's yeah, still uh, palatial estate. Bordeaux. Right <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. only when I'm working. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I decided. I said I needed to spend more time traveling and eating good food. This way, I, you know, I can't afford it on my own. But sure. if I can get this job directing Chef's Table, you know, then they, then I can get to do it for work. I, I think <laughs> before you left for the trip, I was like, I wonder if you will spend more money eating or rather be, be eat more money quantitatively. Then I'll get paid. Then you'll get paid. It's a, it's a toss up. No. Um, right. But if you drink only- like one glass of like, you know, this is a $10,000 bottle of wine or something. Then that's already twenty five hundred dollars in a sip, you know. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's a big true. sip. I always <sighs> say to my crew that my my best strategy on chef's table is the first thing you do when you get to the restaurant is you make friends with the sommelier. Mm, so it's right. the first step. The person that because smells everything. Then you. <laughs> then you'll have you'll always have access to to the wine and the food, like the ice cream and stuff. That's not mashed potatoes. Like that's real. Like, like when you shoot documentary food stuff, you never substitute other foods to no, make them not, look good. Not on our show. The, I mean, I'm, I, I, I joke about how it's an opportunity to get to travel and eat good food, but I mean, the the best part of the series is being able to to do some really great storytelling. Sure, that's really why I'm there, and that's that's what we have a great opportunity to do with Chef's Table is because each. Each episode, even though, like you said, there are there are some conventions and there's a language to the show, it's not quite formulaic in the way that we have broken it down by act. Or there are certainly there are certainly rules that we follow um, and things that we have to do. But each each episode and each story is given its own world and its own life and its own voice. And I don't know, it that kind of part of the process is what gets me excited because each new show is an opportunity to kind of have a blank slate and develop what is this film going to be how do I want to tell it what's the color palette going to be what is what are the ways you know what are the lenses I want to shoot with what are the specialty you know tools that I want to use and you know work with your cinematographer and then with your editor to kind of bring that to life doctors couldn't tell me that I would ever be able to taste again how can you be a chef and not be able to taste? My father was poor. My mom was poor. My family literally was on the streets. I thought that I had to be the best chef in India. People thought I was mad. Rules. <laughs> there are no rules. I mean, the, I think the thing that's the most exciting to me about the show is that it always feels like it's the eccentric 
torture genius question, right? Like that, like who is this chef? What is this character first? And then the food, not that it's an afterthought. They have to be both brilliant in the kitchen and also an interesting character, but it has to be both things. I don't think there's ever a chef that's just very good at cooking and like goes home and has a happy life and, you know, uh, watches TV at night or whatever. You know what I mean? The storytelling is like, kind of unraveling what it is to be a genius for each of these different individuals. And there's something about, I apologize if this is food documentary 101 stuff, I, and I actually haven't seen the show, but I saw the trailer, and it it seems like there's something about food that's, like, accessible to everyone. Like, there's in season two, there's that Indian chef that, like, grew up on the streets, and now he's, like, this world-renowned chef. Like, that anyone, everyone knows what food is. Sure. Obviously, at the higher levels, there's some... Probably some I've never egg. eaten a golden ant, but I could imagine what it tastes like. Right, but even it, but maybe a golden ant would come from someone that like grew up on the streets. Sure. You know, yeah. right? Um, yeah. That there's something super accessible about it. It's not like you're the best, you know, horse jockey, like or right. something. I, I don't know. It seems it's you know, food is just awesome. No, I I definitely feel lucky in that doing when I was in seventh grade. And we had to fill out, you know, what is it that we wanted to do when we grew up or, you know, career goals. I said that I wanted to, to make food television and films about food. Are you serious? I was a fat that kid. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was a fat kid who watched a lot of TV and made movies. Like, so. Can oh, I tell so you, like, <laughs> one of How the- prophetic, though. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what was on when you were a kid that you were like, I want to do that. Like was it like that network? Sun- yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess. Food and network. Food network? When you of were course, a kid? Of course, yeah. You must be much younger than me. No, I think Food Network's been on for, for a while. But yeah, that, that well, yeah, so definitely at least when I was in junior high. But even when I was making my feature, which has nothing to do with food, that was always still something that I was interested in. And I just remember this the other day. I, I remember I took... Um, a culinary class at like a six week program just because I was like, I want to be able to put that on my resume Hmm. so that when I go to, when I have the opportunity to work on a food show one day that I can like stand out from other people that I have experience and technique in the kitchen. That's never actually helped me, but that was how much I was, had seeded that idea. And I think that that was really helpful when I, moved from LA to New York in 2011, I had been, again, it was stop and go making my feature based on when we had money to edit it and finding the right editors and then putting it down because I was working on something else and picking it back up in the nature of indie film and figuring out how to edit down 200 hours and going through that process for the first time. But when I went out to New York, Suddenly, I had much higher rent and cost of living, and I was like, I really got to get into getting, you know, a job that's paying. And, and nonfiction TV was the first accessible way to to do that. There, mm-hmm. there was a lot of that happening in New York, and I remember started meeting with a lot of people that friends would introduce me to, and somebody gave me advice that I think was really helpful. And he said, you know, if you come in and you say you're open to anything, then I'm not going to think of you for anything. Mm-hmm. Think about what is it specifically that you want to be doing and then let everyone know that. So when then that opportunity comes by, they're going to think of you before anyone else because you're passionate about doing Mm -hmm. that thing. 
So that's when I lo- yeah. like hooked into that idea of like, well, I've always wanted to combine my passion. You know, when I was in LA at USC, I had a blog about food and was trying new restaurants all the time and taking cooking all the time and doing um, culinary classes and dreaming about the restaurants I would want to eat at one day. So I was like, I should just own this. Mm-hmm. And so I started saying that to everyone. I want to do food. I want to do food. I ended up started doing projects for MTV. But as soon as they had a food-related show that got greenlit, which was for Cooking Channel and Food Network that shot in Louisiana, I was the person they called, right? Mm-hmm. Because I was the one who was put me on the food show. So, what what stuff did you do for MTV before that? I um, did two episodes of the show True Life. Oh, cool! So I did one on heroin addiction. That's True that, Life I've on re- a heroin that addict. Show is really good. Um, it's great. It was a really great experience. Yeah, it was because you get unlike most shows. For example, Chef's Table, we shoot over the course of ten days. True Life, I shot over the course of seven months for wow. one episode. One episode. Wow. And, and you have two people the, doing the whole thing. Casting, oh, shooting, doing like sound, editing. Yeah, there's just two, two person DP? team. Nope, we shoot it. Oh, really? That's wow. incredible. What, what a great training ground, right? So you've got this feature. You're doing True Life. You did the heroin. What was the other episode? True Life, I'm living in my sibling's shadow. Oh, interesting. Wait, and how did you get... True life. MTV just you just told them you want to make docs, and they're like, "We'll give this this kid a chance." Um, well, so when I was in LA doing my feature, I was doing other story, kind of doing story and editorial work on other documentaries that were very human rights related, like one on Tibetan activism and um, helping out a friend doing one that was a, a, about Iranian uh, politics and just in things that I thought were interesting that were low paying jobs, but I was young and just hungry for anything. So when I moved to New York, this one production company, they really loved that I had this experience doing a lot of doc work, both in post and in production and with young people. And they liked that I was young and could Mm -hmm. relate to young people because MTV and True Life values that. So they didn't look at my resume and say, oh, you, you don't, have any TV experience, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to do this. They said, oh, you come from a doc background, which for True Life is really great. So that was my first way to break into the world that is, you know, cable television, mm-hmm. which then occupied like the next four years of my life mm-hmm. um, and gave me the ability to say, okay, I can work in this industry and support myself. Right. I can like make a living from telling stories, even though not every step of the story that I was telling working in cable television were things as an auteur director. Sure. Were stories that I, you know, they get boiled down and they're formulaic and you're, but they, but like you said, it's a great training ground to be able to work with different characters, to be able to understand how to, you know, create something beginning, middle, end, to work with different personalities, to understand the business of it. So, and you're doing everything, right? So, like, on top of all of that, right, you're really dialing in on every single aspect of the craft so that when you move on to something bigger where you maybe you have a DP or you have an editor, you're coming from a place of authority, right? It makes a huge difference, I think. In my experience, in my opinion, 
what makes a great director is knowing what you want, Mm -hmm. right? Or at least the job, the job of being a director, not necessarily the end product of what you make is great. But what makes a good director in in the field or in post and in pre-production is somebody who knows what they want. And it's a lot easier to know what you want when you know how all of those facets of that production fit together Mm -hmm. as a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So when I know how things are going to edit together, when I know what these lenses are going to look like and what kind of coverage we need, um, when I know, because I've done, you know, hundreds of interviews at this point, what kind of sound bites are and aren't Mm going to work and when Mm -hmm. the tense needs to change and how I can, you know... All of that experience has has given me not the tools to necessarily have a great vision. I think that comes from somewhere else, but know the technical aspect of like what's mm-hmm. going to actually give you the tools to make something at the end of the day that works and mm-hmm. what's going to give your post team um, the ability to make the best possible product. Right. So so then you've done MTV stuff, yeah. right? And so then you're hopping into what sort of world? What, what comes after that? So I did, um, I went to Louisiana. Uh-huh. And I was producing, field producing, which essentially is directing. It's pretty much the same thing I do now. And we call, I call it a director, but was working on a show about culinary school. So it was a, the first time I did an eight episode series that had an arc to the series mm-hmm. and an arc within each episode. But it was about, I followed four characters jumping ship. One girl was a stripper, decided she wanted to change her life. Another was dealing with domestic abuse. So some real hard-hitting stories. Another guy just got back from Afghanistan and was dealing with PTSD. So they were all trying to go through big life changes and go to culinary school. So again, going from heroin addiction Mm -hmm. in Jersey and in Oklahoma to domestic abuse and PTSD, I, like, find myself oftentimes like drawn to things that are like difficult environments and I think that a lot of it is because I I like when because you have a camera people just open up the doors and show you into like the darkest parts of their life Mm -hmm. and I think that I've I have the reason why I think I'm good at documentary is because I have this weird thing where I actually like really care Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking to people or when I'm interested in, in, in filming things, it comes from a very sincere place. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why people end up, generally speaking, trusting me and, you know, giving a lot of access. Mm-hmm. But I've dealt with kind of a lot of very difficult situations. And then I did it. I did a show for Sundance Channel that dealt with fashion but th- and, and, and crime. So... I was spent like a couple months on Canal Street, like embedding myself with counterfeit crime rings. So I would just go hang out there every just day. Just by yourself? Yeah, which is kind of weird looking back that the production company was just okay. And I <laughs> think I was like in my mid-20s at yeah, the yeah. time. That's incredible. And they would just say, yeah, you go out there. So I would hang out with all these Nigerian guys. <laughs> <laughs> who like brought me in and would just and then I and they didn't suspect you of or... no at one point I had my photo like on the inside that was like don't let her oh. but I told them I told them I was making a film sure okay. sure and like you've got a camera with you 
no, most not of the time, at or, first. You, or you're just kind of like at building. first I was pretending to buy the bags, and then I was like, actually, I'm making this film, and then I would just go back and I would just hang out with them and talk and ask them about their lives and their kids, and you know, one guy like asked me on a date, and you know, it was like uh, it was very. How was the date though? <laughs> um, <laughs> great. No, he. I think the first question he asked me is like, so are you a mother? <laughs> on the date or yeah. before the date? On the date. Oh. But you went on the date. Well, yeah. it wasn't a date. I mean, I think we went to McDonald's and got a snack. Yeah. So I wasn't quite Did you sure. Share but the, it re- snack, I realized it was a date like halfway in that sure, sure. I thought he wanted. Did he to. pay though? I bought it. I put it on the company card. <laughs> yeah. Well, then this you sounds asked like him a out. very good date. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't be. I haven't been in touch with him in a while. Anyways, um, shoot him a text. He probably listens to the podcast. <laughs> but that's that. Those are the kind of you know. The, it's been documentary has been really fun, and then it like has, yeah. allows all of these crazy worlds that you're never new, usually exposed to, and you just kind of get to learn about different people and make something. And what I was saying before is that in cable TV. I would have all of these incredible experiences in the field. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing story. And I just drove like sure. out to the middle of nowhere in Louisiana with with this like FS700 and and was able to sneak in and get this guy crying because he, you know, he doesn't have enough time to spend with his daughter. And his little girl ran up and was like, Daddy, I miss you. And just like really human stuff for this, you know, another guy getting over PTSD and having like night terrors. And then off what I would see is they would edit it and it would suddenly be like, Chop, chop, chop. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Right. Music sting, establishing shot, graphic placement. And suddenly it felt like it was a soft scripted mm-hmm. reality show because that's what people wanted to watch. Right. Even though it wasn't. Even though it could have been just like a really beautiful storytelling that right. took a lot of time and effort to capture. It might as well have just been fake people acting. Right. So... That's so fascinating to me because the number one thing when I do something soft scripted is like I'm just so frustrated by the idea of fabricating everything. You know, you feel like a liar, right? You're like, okay, like you're pitching jokes. I mean, it's never like anything nearly as hard hitting as like heroin addiction. It's like, well, I did have a very large man learn how to dance in a ballet class. Sure, sure. And people believe the truth. They need oh, yeah. to believe While that driving Big Black a Fiat really what, what he really... <laughs> You're not shying what, away from what, the hard-hitting. Yeah. yeah. What, what is it really he was to not be big good. and also drive a Fiat? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> a traditionally small sure. car, but the 500X is actually surprisingly large. <laughs> Great. Um, good to know. That's true. Um, but I, I do feel like, oh, like I'm always curious about, like, wouldn't it be great if we, this was... Yeah, we don't have you... the time and the circumstances to really like create something that was cinematic and maybe funny still, but authentic in the way that you got to capture. And then they just undid everything, right? Yeah, that's I mean, a harsh I, way I of hate, putting I it. I hate to like no, no hate, you know. Sure. Yeah. I doubt no the post production team hopefully is going to be yeah, listening sure. to this, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I think you're making a product, and when you're you're doing something for cable television, you're, you, the network, ha, you know, it's the lowest common denominator. I've been told working on travel channel shows 
oh, you know, you need to write, you need to work on this for the the guy sitting in his lazy boy in Ohio. Sure. He's your audience. Right. So that's what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. When I'm making Chef's Table, they're saying, you know, the CEO of Apple and like startup people and the creators of this and thinkers of that and sure. international movers and shakers or, you know, make it for whoever you want or make the content great and it will find its audience. Right. And... That's just what's been a breath of fresh air in working with, you know, streaming services and online places because you can develop a niche audience rather than having to, mm-hmm. you know, hit the lowest common denominator. Right. But there's something about MTV, like, you know, it's kind of a stretch comparison, but Harry Potter is like this like 700 page book series and all these like eight year old kids are reading 700 page books yeah. or like before Harry Potter came out, like getting them to read 100 pages was like impossible. Like MTV, like these stories of like heroin addiction. Or I saw this true life about OCD, this guy that basically couldn't leave his house because he like didn't know if his door was locked or not. Like that was just like one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen. And they had a show called Made also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, yeah, yeah. It was like so good. <laughs> and how, how do you get a kid to watch a documentary sure, yeah. unless there's the establishing shot and the meanwhile and the graphical, you know, treatment and the music sting and it's like it's like an entryway to real life stories and i used to watch a lot of mtv like up until pretty recently like a couple years ago and um i felt like they're obviously they have like the real world and kind of the real reality stuff but they also told kind of some i thought really interesting deeper stories that i would never watch because mtv is easy to just have on in the background like while i'm working on something Whereas like watching the Sundance Channel or IFC or Netflix yeah, shows. Yeah, something like, we have to focus. I have to sit down, yeah. sit on Watch my couch it, yeah. and really, yeah, try that's to get a, into that's it. That's a good, you know, way to think about it. And I I don't feel about the, the same way about the true life shows that mm. I do about the Sundance Channel and the Travel Channel and the Cooking Channel shows that I do. Like I do feel like true life has its, you know, it's been on since 1998. Mm-hmm. We're given seven months to make it. They do have a pretty strict formula, but it's one that I have some more respect for. Mm-hmm. Like, like, did they cut the moments that you wanted to keep in there or did they just kind of filter them? No, I don't think in true life that that was so much the issue. It was yeah. more these other programs I yeah, was talking shows. about. Yeah. In true life, you just know going in, for example, if I were... If I were working on another project, you go in and you there's something that suddenly comes out of left field that you find is like really fascinating mm-hmm. addition to the story, but it's a different you want to suddenly interview their mom. Mm-hmm. In true life, only the main subject can be interviewed. Oh, interesting. So there are certain style things where every act has to start and end a specific way. Mm. And are you casting True Life too, or it's already cast when they hand you an episode? You're casting it as well when I was doing it. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there. I think that it, the, there's kind of some hand-holding both mm-hmm. to the storytelling and to the watching, mm-hmm. but the, the kind of the meat of the content is all pretty real and pretty, pretty I yeah. think, profound in some cases. And, and definitely, and my experience in doing, I mean, the heroin addiction, obviously you have these built-in high, high stakes. Mm-hmm. And I became really attached to some of these families and kids going through I was sure. I was in bathrooms in South New Jersey filming kids shooting shooting up and then spending an hour hour or sorry an hour like a whole day 
with somebody that I cared about watching him withdraw and looked like he was about to die and not really being able to do much to help him. So those are those are things that are very hard hitting. But then when I got assigned the the episode, I'm living in my sibling's shadow. I was like, what? This is is so lame. Yeah. So you're assigned that, but you're not given the cast. You have to go find the person that fits the kind of idea behind the show. You have to you either have to find them or, you know, people write in. Mm. You know, they put that on TV and on their website and everything. This is a super dumb question, but how do you go about casting something like that? Especially back then, right? This is kind of pre-Craigslist, right? This is pre-like, no. (laughs) But like, 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 well, tell me for real. It's pre-like everyone. Ubiquitous Craigslist, Facebook, yeah. Is it? Or maybe not. This was 2011. Oh, okay. So it was like last year. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> yes, this was five, year, five years ago. Five years okay, ago, so there's yeah. already Facebook and kind of the social networks are pretty I've, accessible. I've built in. So, so did you use social networks? Is that what the- we, well, we would do a lot of the, we would go through all the write the people who'd email in. Mm-hmm. For, for example, for the I'm Living in My Sibling Shadow, we were having trouble casting that, so it was like, okay. What, where, where do you find good stories about siblings? Okay, sports. Mm-hmm. So it was looking up local newspapers of like small towns all over the country to find like brothers playing sports sure, yeah. or things like that. Or like the high school quarterback, and then what's their siblings' deal? And that's exactly what mm-hmm. we ended up doing. Is we found four brothers in Illinois, and the three older brothers had all been like the MVP all-star team football quarterbacks in this small town in Illinois. And then it was the youngest brother who was the most obsessed because all of he looked up to all mm-hmm. of his brothers that he wanted to like make the all-star team. And so we followed him that season up to the awards ceremony of when whether he was going to find out whether he was going to get to be an all in the all-stars. And I'll never forget when he didn't get in, even though he worked so hard and wanted it more than all the other three probably combined. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, he's this tattooed, you know, football playing 18-year-old popular kid in in Illinois. But then he got home and we were, he like went into his room and he sat down and then he just started bawling. And... It, that that moment was pretty profound for me because I had been coming from like working with heroin addiction and Tibetan activism and disability rights and these things. I was like, these are these are the the real stories, mm-hmm. and this one is so fluffy and stupid. And I I felt just as much like pain and sorrow of when he didn't make the team as I did almost for you know the the kids dealing sure. with the drug addiction and you know yeah it's all human stories they always talk about the right the motivation like that's his heroin withdrawal right totally whenever so that was that i think something clicked for me as a documentary filmmaker at that point that i I said the story is always like everyone has that story what what, it's all relative Mm -hmm. and i think with chef's table what you said it's like oh or is it that person who's going home and just has an easy life and just goes home and watches dinner and eats TV. And all of the chefs that we film probably do that, mm-hmm. right? Right. But, you know, they all have a story, right? But you guys, that you, but that don't you, you focus on 
kind of like career obsessed, like perfection obsessed chefs and people that go home and think about food. Right. They're obviously I'm I'm downplaying the level of one. There is a good a good amount of casting that happens that is headed by Brian McGinn and does a great job of of finding the chefs for the show. But in addition to that, anyone who I mean, Chef's Table is about the best chefs in the world. So any anyone who's at the top of the pyramid of what they do, no matter what industry, you have to be somewhat of a crazy person or like so addicted or so passionate or so gifted or there's something about you that is interesting mm-hmm. that, that if you get to that level. Um, so it's what drives you to be the best. The dogma of the show that that David Gelb talks about is that, you know, anyone that great, you know, we're looking at all these chefs as other superheroes. They're the best in the world. And what we're interested in the show is finding out what was the radioactive spider bite. Like what was what was that inciting incident that gave them the powers that we're going to see them. So we look back at their life and we try to figure out what the defining moments are that gave them the power to become great. Hero's journey. Sure. Right. Film school 101. So it's like the power to become great or the desire to become great or both. I, I think that so, in some of them, um, yeah, I think that in some of the ca- the cases, it's their own will. And in other cases, it's something, you know. They, sure, it's it, Batman versus Spider-Man, sure. basically. Obsession versus spider gift, <laughs> basically. <laughs> right, Base- versus talent. Sure. I think your point, though, that you, I think you were trying to make about the football player, right, is that mm-hmm. there's something that clicked in with you of like being able to zero in on what the story for each individual person is, whether it's relatively mundane, right, and you're you're lucky that you're there during a kind of a big, big moment in their lives, or it's something where they're going through heroin, like that ability to kind of figure out, you know, sure, that chef is going to go home and like watch TV, but like maybe early in the morning he's going to go do something crazy and your ability to to figure out what what it is that makes a person tick and then shoot it is fascinating that's really interesting and i guess i was a, a different way of thinking about documentary than certainly i was thinking i you know like i think everyone kind of thinks like oh you know you get a phone call cuz they're going to go you know have this big moment in their lives or whatever but that's just the beginning right like an interesting person in interesting circumstances still doesn't get you to a great story. No, I think the biggest misconception with documentary filmmaking is that, oh, well, I mean, you is there a director or there's a writer? Like, are, you know, well, it's just it happened and you filmed it. There is right. this misconception that. The story tells itself. The story tells itself. Exactly. And it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the the hardest thing I've ever done is, you know, edited a documentary. And when you think you start with how many hours of footage, you know, and my feature was almost 200 that ended up being, you know, under just under 80 minutes. And in Chef's Table, we have probably, you know, 45 hours of footage that go down to 45 minutes. That's a lot of choices you have to make. And even before you shoot those 45 hours of footage, you have to really be so strategic because they're not going to send me back to Slovenia very easily to do pickups or to Berlin. So you really have to know exactly what you want to shoot the whole thing in one 10-day period. 
And just dumb qu- real quick dumb question, yeah. but do you shoot the food stuff yourself or is there like some second unit that does like all the slow motion like food close ups? Yeah. Well, I don't eggs, I don't shoot bomb. anything myself. I have a DP. Right, right, but I mean you're you're planning out the shot with the DP for how the food is covered. It's not like we have a second unit that just There's not a beauty food, food team. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, so in doing other commercial content with food, I think they're, you know, they're there are often food stylists and things like that, but you don't need a food stylist when you're working with the best chefs in the world and the sure. best ingredients in the world. I mean, it's really as simple as that. You know, we shoot – one reason that our show stands out visually is because we shoot it like an indie film in that I have a focus puller. We're shooting on the red. We have – What about you know, lighting? Like how much lighting lenses. is in the kitchen? We – we relight the kitchen before mm. we shoot. Not massive changes. Sometimes it's just, you know, changing some bulbs. And, and sorry, yeah. is, is the goal to just bring levels up or are you kind of sculpting a bit more of a look for it as well? So with each, I can speak to my experience because, again, there's sure. five directors on the show. And we all have a different way that we go about it. And um, there's three different DPs who shoot. But with Adam... I'll come up with kind of my f- references. I'll have like three films or so that I'm, Is this I'm Adam going Brooker? to. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I worked with him once. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he gets around. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, with this episode in Berlin, the chef that I was doing is like kind of a darker character. He was in a, a gang before he went into the kitchen. He had a really troubled childhood. Like his dad used to beat him. He has like this really, he has a temper. He's kind of an intense character. So I was pulling, like I was looking at gangster films. Mm -hmm. So I created, okay, here's a lot of the color palette that I want to employ throughout the film. It's kind of these like darker tones and more pools of light and more shadow and these kind of warmer color tones and things like that. So we'll kind of look at different um, ways that the camera moves and different just kind of like formulate a vi- like global visual rules for the episode and then you know can you give me an example of like some rules you guys formulated for the gangster episode okay so for example like for example when i was in slovenia versus Ber- berlin in slovenia i decided that i wanted to i was doing this kind of more indie euro film inspired by some like Croatian indie films I saw and some French indie films. And I was using like wanted to use the zoom lens a lot and which had never been done in chef's table. And I wanted to do some cool stuff with car mounts and kind of employed some like really interesting like focus changes. So those were kind of some motifs that I set out. Whereas with Tim, I was so we do a lot of kind of that Aronofsky, the wrestler, like follow shot. That's something very common in the chef's table. So I, I decided that instead of that sh- that behi- centered behind the scene, what I, I wanted those to be front facing and low angle, like mm. more gangster. We're looking up at him. He's looking badass. We're going through spaces constantly of dark and light. Mm-hmm. Where we're when we're following him, we're maybe focused on something in the background, and then we're sh- we're switching to him, almost like there's darkness like looming, or you mm-hmm. don't know who's going to come be coming at you. So basically, taking the same conventions that have been established for the show, and then just reimagining them for this character and this city. 
And so when you, sorry, that, this is the stuff that really fascinates me. It's like all this yeah. nitty gritty filmmaking stuff. So when you are going to shoot him from the front down low, walking somewhere and play with the focus or something, make him look like a badass. Are you doing that shot just for chef's table or is it he is walking out to mm-hmm. see how the front of the house is no, going? No, it's just for chef's table. Okay. So you do a bunch of staged shots. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I mean, stay, yeah, sure, I guess. you. We have 10 days to make sure. a film. So we're constantly, I mean, it, that those 10 days, if I was just there shooting Veritave, what the chef was doing on any Nothing 10 days of his life, we're never going to have a show that he's going to be traveling most of the time. And then the rest of the time he's going to be in the kitchen and then he's going to be home watching TV. Right. And so, yeah, we need, they're all based on, you know, their real life. There's never a point where I'm asking him to, like I said to him, I wanted to shoot a really cool club scene because Berlin has such a vibrant nightlife. So I was thinking, you know, 25th hour and mm-hmm. um, that scene from Babel were my references. And I was like, yeah, I want to go Japanese in. Girl. Japanese girl. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to go in and we're going to like lead him and it's just going to be colored lights on his face and it's going to be a great like visual backdrop for him to tell like a really cool dark story and, and we'll have him sitting down drinking a cocktail. And so you would shut down a club or something or you yeah. would? Okay. So this was my idea. And then I started talking to the chef and I was like, oh, what do you think about this? And he said, well, I don't drink cocktails. I only drink wine. I don't drink beer and I don't go to clubs. So I said, okay. <laughs> Sounds like a producer. <laughs> yeah. So he said, I said, okay, so that's not real to you. Right. But here's what I'm trying to do. What else can we come up with mm-hmm. in that vein that would be real? Yeah. Where are you a badass? Where are you a badass? So we ended up shooting this thing. He's like, well, one thing that I do, which was like totally you wouldn't have expected it to be as crazy badass, but he goes out to this like Chinese restaurant with his friends, but they all like, it's this like dark, cool looking Asian restaurant, Chinese restaurant in Berlin with like red walls and dragons. And they sit in this big circular table and they all come wearing like suits. Hmm. And they sit around and they like drink really expensive wine and they like, so I filmed that and it just like felt like straight out of a gangster film. And then I employed like, there were some camera moves in um, the Godfather, where they're like all sitting at the table and the camera just sure, like moves you're, like, behind, floating their behind their heads. Their heads. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the visual language pieces that I employed in this episode. Was like, okay, let's as many times as we can kind of have this like moving around their heads and kind of creating that gangster feel and that mood. And so, so, so this is great. This is perfect. We're in this Chinese restaurant that you've shut down, right? So no, no, it's still it's still uh, open. It's still open. Okay. So uh, tell me about your your rigs, your setups. That sort of are you on Dana dollies? Are you on movies? Are you on Steadicams? What is that sort of? What does the actual filmmaking look like in this case? Right, like you know you're going to be there, right? You pre lit mm-hmm. it. It's open, so it's kind of this wild environment. Is everything handheld? Because this is fun. Nobody ever cares about this stuff. This is that's stuff like all I we like care about. about. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Okay, well, so the way that it works is that we get to 
per my shot list, after I've picked out like, okay, here are the things we're going to shoot. We're going to, you know, and I come up with my document that's like, here are my visual references. Here's what I want the interviews to look like. Here's the color palettes. Here's my, and then here are the scenes. And then here are basically the shots that I want in the scenes. And I start and identifying like, okay, we need a steady cam here and here and here. So let's group these on the same day. And this is after you've like scouted locations and things or is this no, before this you even before travel? before I even went to Berlin. Oh, wow. And um, you have and to submit I, this to the showrunner, all this stuff? Um, to my producer, yeah, to the line producer. But it's constantly evolving. Like, mm-hmm. things change that day. Like, I'll hear something in the, my first interview, bec- and then suddenly half of the things I planned are completely change. Right. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize you were still in touch with your grandfather. Let's knock off this whole other thing I wanted to film and film you with your grandfather and schedule an interview. And so all of these things are super flexible but I always come in overly prepared with like a really solid plan with the with the acknowledgement that I'm going to drop anything Mm -hmm. at any given second and change it for something better and that's important to always have that in the back of your head that no matter how much you pre-planned an idea and you're excited about it you have to follow what's best for the story and that's based on what the story is that they tell you in the interview so I always do an interview right like pretty much I'll shoot something in the kitchen first to get them used to the camera, and then I go into the interview in the afternoon for the rest of the day for a lot, like five hours. A five-hour interview. And can you give us some interview tips? Because um, I feel like that's something that, like a lot of practice helps you, but it, I think there's probably a few things you should avoid. And Like the thing for me that it's, I'm like interviewer one, like I'm like the most basic interviewer. I'm not very good at it. Well, Yet. I wouldn't say, don't put yourself down. We have okay. been doing this for a year. Well, no, I can ask people about directing, but if I want to, like, you know how you're always supposed to, like, answer the question, like, include the question in your answer? Yeah. And, like, I can never get people to do that. You just no say. No matter how many times I yes. tell them. You just say, use a, f- use a full sentence, because my voice is going to be cut out of this. People usually. And then they do it? Yeah. Because I feel like once they get into the conversation, they forget. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I feel like I would continue to not. So do you just remind them all the time? Like what what happens? Like say you're, or do you you're say, in finish your the sentence. hour two and a half, right? Of, of mm-hmm. the chef who's not used to talking on camera for that long. You're pretty tired. Everybody's pretty tired at this point. And he continually just kind of starts the sentence off without phrasing it properly. What do you do? Well, if I hear a response that I know I can't use, I'll just ask them, say. Um, Will you interrupt them? I'll usually let them finish the statement, depending on if I feel like they're going to go on for 20 minutes, then Mm -hmm. I might interrupt them beforehand. But usually interrupting people causes more damage than -hmm. letting them finish, even if they have to repeat it, because it just throws people off Mm -hmm. and they get pissed when you interrupt them. So I usually let them say their thing and then I say, that was actually really great. Just rephrase it again, saying... When I was 13 and started that way, mm-hmm. because that would be, you know. And do you spoon feed it like that, where you say, like, give them an example of how you would like them to start the sentence? A lot of times, yeah. And are you taking notes or no? Uh, yeah. I'll take notes on, for example, if they're talking about something that's abstract. Like, for example, the chef was talking, oh, the gomio point. He was telling a story like, well, I, they came in and I got 14 gomio points and I should have gotten 16. And I'm like, nobody's going to know what that is. Yeah, I don't know. So I'll like write a note, make sure that I have in a full sound bite him explaining mm. what 
Gomeo is. So And what is it? It's a different guide. It's like Michelin. Oh, okay. It's a different food guide, French-based. So things like that I'll make a note of to make sure that we have all the pieces for the story to work later. Or if we, a lot of times what can happen, especially when you're covering as much ground as we are on Chef's Table, where it's like somebody's whole life and I'm in a five-hour interview and I'm doing a couple of these, if I, if I just follow where the conversation leads, there's going to be so many holes mm-hmm. in like, the progress of the chronological story. So there's there's a balance that you have to find. And usually I try to stay as much as I can. So if they go in a different direction, which they always will, they'll take one question and they'll end up over here about something else that's awesome and interesting. And because they're emotionally there, you want to poke into that. And then you have to decide, okay, is it so interesting that it's worth me diverging from then getting the whole track of the story, which I need, mm-hmm. and then ending up blah, 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 and into like a mess? Or can I make a note about, okay, that's an interesting idea. Let me come back to that. But even though you ended up talking about this one topic about, you know, how to make baked bread, how you bake your right. bread, I'm going to come back to third grade. Right. Even though it feels like a weird shift of the conversation, but then it never does because then you say, tell me about third grade. And then they just launch off usually and be like, oh, third grade, I was in the micro mini marathon. And people just love talking about themselves. So it's easy. And do you ever wait to come back to the linear progression of history, like in a future interview? Like, are you ever like, I'll get back to this. He's really raw about, you know, sushi and why that's important to him. I'll get it in the next one. Or is it important to stay on? It's finding that balance, right? If something is super emotional and you're like, or you cracked into something that you don't feel like you'll go back to. For example, he was talking really in depth about his mom and it was really emotional and it was like going off on a tangent. But I was like, this is a tangent that's worth veering off for because I actually don't really know Mm-hmm. where this is going to lead and it, this is important for me to get there and I might not be able to revisit this. So I'll come back, you know, I'll go as far as this will lead me and then we can go. So, but if they're just talking about something food related or, you know, everyone has developed their own story, especially these people who have PR people. And mm-hmm. so they they have these narratives that oftentimes you can ask them a lot of these things and they'll start with one thing and then they'll arrive at a place that sounds really interesting like wow that was a great delivery but you that's these are just like the bites they know because they've given them so many times they just fall into those grooves yeah yeah so i'm never worried about like oh that was so great let me follow that because i know those are the things that they already have pre-planned and they've given those so many times i'm like i really actually want to just track like what your life was and what led me up into that point because i know in the edit we're gonna i'm gonna want all of those steps and what do you do if they're like mumbling a lot or saying like every other word or, you know, or things of that nature? Do you care about that or? Well, I'm dealing with a lot of people who it's English is not their first language. So it's bigger problems than saying like or um. It's using completely the wrong <laughs> words and the wrong tense and saying things that don't make any sense grammatically. Right. So that's always an issue of saying 
the chef would say all the time, he would use the word remind instead of remember. I remind when blah, 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 blah. And, and what do you do? Say he's, <clears throat> he's like in the moment, right? He's talking about his mom. I remind when my mother first hit me that one time or whatever. And, you know, like, what do you do? Depending on, I, I my inclination is to to correct them because I think they actually want that as well. Right. But I also know that I, I like hear Danny O'Malley, who is my story producer, and I can think of him saying, eh, you know, we can. So I just make sure at a certain point I, in between, when, when the emotion felt right, especially with this guy who I'd correct him. And I mean, this guy was just had a temper, like ridiculous. So I would correct him, I think, more than most people tend to do in interviews. But in between, I wrote out, I was like, remind, remember. And I said, this is what you've been saying. This is, this is the right word. And he was like, okay, thank you. So usually I'll take a moment like mm-hmm. between takes if it's something like that. Other times I'll just say, oh, can you say that again? Only use this word instead. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I'll ask the question again because a lot of times when you ask people, they're like, oh, say that again. They'll be like, wait, what did I say? Right, right. right. And that, or else they'll be like trying to remember and repeat it back. But I'll say, oh, can you, can you say this again with that? Here's the question. Let me ask you the question again. Right. As though I want to do it. Right. So it becomes less of them being inadequate. But I, then I say the question again. And then if it comes out differently, it's fine. They're sure. just answering the question again, however it comes to them. And maybe even a little more concise. A little more concise yeah. and, and with the right words. <laughs> right. So let me ask, you mentioned before the, the thing that's not Michelin, the, what is it? The, the oh, the Gomeo. Gomeo, yeah, okay, great. So that's a perfect example of like, a very specific piece of food knowledge. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have that sort of knowledge walking into a subject? Like, are you learning about heroin before you go do true life? Or are you learning as you go? So I think generally speaking, in in documentary, it ranges. Even on Chef's Table, it ranges. For example, there's one director on the show who is an encyclopedia, like knows every chef in the world and who's doing what and is just does a ton of research and just knows everything because he's a really into food. And then there's another director who's like, ah, I like burgers and pizzas. Convince me it's good. And goes in really not with a with a less less of a background in all of this you know, Michelin star food restaurants and the chefs. So, and both of, both of their episodes are great. Mm-hmm. So there's a different approach. I think I kind of straddle that line where I like to know enough. I like to do a good amount of research because I want to make sure that I have the emotional arc. Mm-hmm. Little things like knowing all of the names of the guides and knowing all of the techniques and knowing all of the chefs. Those are good things sometimes if you want to kind of connect with your subjects and like mm-hmm. really speak their language speak their language mm-hmm. convince and convince them to trust you that's more of an off-camera thing but if you can do that other ways because you're just charming and fun mm-hmm. <laughs> like the one the one director i mentioned who said i can go in saying i burgers and yeah. pizza convince me like pizzas he, are fun he gets their trust and and has a great relationship with the subjects even because almost because he mm-hmm. comes from a different world and it's like i know this you know that let's 
let's learn something about each other. So I think that I have to know as much as I need to know in order to tell all of the steps of their journey and their story and their, and how, like when I, when I shot in Berlin, I was like, I can't shoot a documentary about Berlin when I've never spent any time there. Mm -hmm. It's a city with an incredible amount of crazy history the past 80 years. It's one of the most interesting places in the world right now. For me to put a, a direct a film that's going to play in 190 countries, that's going to be set there, and it's Berlin is going to be a character in the show, I need to go there. You know, I went there 10 days ahead of time just to hang out and to get a right. sense of it. So there are certain things that I feel like are important, and it's not necessarily like what is Gomeo, but it's more mm-hmm. – how do how do I I need to like get a sense of the neighborhood Kreuzberg where he grew up and I need to like make sure I'm eating his food and I understand what the food culture is in Berlin generally speaking and I need to understand like what are the the what what's going on politically and what are the challenges and what was the context of when the wall came down like there's so many things that I think about in terms of research that aren't foodie related yeah but are part of your story right yeah fascinating wow. Well, this is we could probably have you back I, yeah, on yeah. for like another hour. Because we're, <laughs> easy, it's easy. actually already usually already we, eleven o'clock. Yeah, so you've been uh, fascinating. Uh, we'd fun. love love to have you back on. So, season two of Chef's Table. Which episodes are yours again? Season two, just Anna Rush in Slovenia, and that comes out. And that's May twenty seventh, and the one I have been talking about today, which I just um, oh, shot in so. Berlin, yeah. is actually a part of season four which won't come out until early 2017. Wow. Super awesome. awesome. That's a short. Yeah. So, Abby, we do unpaid endorsements on the show where we talk about things that we really like this week. Unpaid endorsements. My endorsements are always horrible, but <laughs> there's this special feature on this Robert Rodriguez DVD. I think it was either... What was the movie he did with Johnny Depp the last day uh, in Mexico? Uh once Upon a Time in Mexico. Oh, yeah, of course. So he made this movie. It's not very good. It's it's like called... the, that's the third of the El Mariachi movies, right? Yeah. So I had it on DVD, or we rented it, or I forget. Somehow I had it. And he in the special features, he talked about editing. And actually, because Abby was on here, reminded me of it. Yeah. And he made this little video. He talked. He There was like a little behind the scenes where he showed like how they did this shot where Selma Hayek throws a knife like it. Johnny Depp or something and he like catches it in his teeth and he you know Robert Rodriguez is like famous for being into filmmaking like the technique the yeah. craft of filmmaking yeah, yeah. and so he's like talk he made a short video about how he makes his salsa but he shot it like super oh, dramatically like, put the camera oh. right next to like his machete that he was like cutting the tomatoes with and it's like like everything was so fast and action-packed and his whole thing was like look you yeah. can make like this action-packed out of anything awesome yeah. movie about making salsa when did he do that whenever that movie came out like i, don't I know wish i had seen it i because i was i did stuff like that and i pulled like dexter the opening sequence as a reference but in my gangster i took the lighting from some kill bill sequences and then i had him like hacking up a chicken bone <laughs> oh wow and like cool. macro diopter yeah to create that but i wish i that would have been a great reference yeah for me, had well, I, he, known. I mean he just shot it on like a Sony PD-150 or whatever the camera was back then. It was like, his whole point was like, you don't need a lot of money and you don't need a super fancy camera. And as long as you can shoot something and edit it, it can be exciting. Even if it's something as like 
you know, normal is making salsa. Making but salsa. but that being said, that's he, pretty much what I do. He wasn't undervaluing <laughs> his salsa. He he said, "I'm really excited about salsa, and here's my video about it." There's actually an okay. iPhone commercial right now where this girl like cuts onions and she's like videotaping yeah, yeah. with her iPhone, and it like goes to con or something. Yeah, um, that's a, really a good, good spot. Commercial. Yeah, yeah, I love that spot. Um, anyway, so I'll see if I can find a link to it. I Maybe bet I'll put it on the on, on the blog, the Tumblr. Perfect. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Abby, do you have an unpaid endorsement? Well, okay. Well, this sounds like so. I last night I saw I don't know who ever goes to Cine Family. Sure. But they have they've restored this 1973 Japanese anime film. You know, Belladonna. The, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen how it's oh, Belladonna of Sadness. What a treat! Yo, man. To see that, I mean, every frame of that film is absolutely beautiful it's it was such a treat to go see that so so um, wa- walk us through it real quick Cause, right because it's well it, yeah are they releasing it on dvd or something i feel like i don't know a special question. aspect to this release i didn't yeah. know i don't watch anime so this anything? isn't like a me being a super nerd i just like you know good storytelling and beautiful art and this appealed to me. I mean, the soundtrack is amazing. And I mean, just there wasn't a moment where I wasn't in awe of how they were deciding to tell the images or how, tell the story visually with watercolors. It was just, yeah, it's really incredible artistry. Cool. I haven't seen, I don't think there's anything else that I've ever seen quite like it. I mean, think Fantasia, but. Japanese indie and watercolors, but and, like and like beautiful. slightly erotic and horrific at the same time. Well, right? oh yeah, okay. So, well, yeah, it's about the devil and you know taking and there's there's a huge orgy scene and it's yeah there's it's very erotic. But I think it was like one of school the, people one of the lost <laughs> films of well so so a little context for people outside of LA. Cine Family is like a pretty. It's like the film snob of film snobbery, right? Like yeah, these yes. guys are, the, this, this is like the deepest cut. And I think this movie specifically, they were like, oh, what's a lost film that we would love to bring back? Exactly. Like if you could restore any movie, what right. would it be? And they're like, oh, this film that's been on YouTube, but we've never actually seen it. And it's, and it's full, you know, it's full potential. And then they restored it, and it was like, oh, you never knew the brush, stro- brush strokes were like this. And there were so many details of the images that transcended what the, even the original was that everyone already loved. So it was um, – I had never seen it on like YouTube or anything, but I was just in awe watching that last night. So that's that's on my mind. There's also a new uh, – also L.A. thing. I don't know the, how like timely this is, but there's a new art exhibition at the – at Barnstall Park, Uh-oh. that's actually oh, really? pretty good too. What's that? I did like my art Sunday con- consumption Sunday, sure, where yeah. you take things in before you fill the well. I yeah, like to say. but there's some really interesting things. They just had an opening there. It's on, I think, through June. Cool. Not too far from here. And they have a really good wine event. That's uh, true. Also, in the summer, you can get your Bordeaux there. Yeah. <laughs> So my my endorsement is yet another IndieWire article. I feel like this is maybe my third or fourth in a row, but it's great. It's called A Letter to My Students About to Graduate from Film School. It's by a filmmaker 
who later like started teaching. His name is Steve Collins. He's accomplished in his own right and started uh, teaching film school in his later years. And it's just a great little letter to students who are about to basically leave what he calls the oasis of film school, right? So film school is all about this intensely nurturing and focused and powerful experience that everyone has. And then you go out into the real world and you're immediately confronted with the challenges of what it is to be a filmmaker and how hard it is to to stay creative and to to find your own path and so i thought it was especially pertinent to this podcast because that's what it's all about and basically it's just great little nuggets of advice on how to stay true to yourself and how to practice your art so it is called one more time a letter to my students about to graduate from film school. Mm. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's yeah, really great. I love letters. Well, Abby, this was incredible. So much fun. Yeah. Really great. Thanks for letting me talk about nerd out on all my stuff yeah, that nobody no. normally wants to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm doing so much interviewing. Someone needed to interview you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Abby, interview engine. Yeah, an interview engine. Um, how can our listeners learn more about you and follow your career? You can follow me on Instagram. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. What's I bet Instagram name? is great for documentary. On Instagram? Abra Fever. A-B-R-A Fever. Yeah. One word. Yeah, that's a story for another time, that name. And do you and have a website? I don't. I should probably do that. I don't have a website. So, so IMDB you. Abby Fuller, yeah. right? You can look me up on IMDB. You can find me on Facebook. You can check out my film, Do You Dream in Color? com for my feature documentary. Oh, cool. And Chef's Table comes out on May 27th on Netflix. Killer. Looking forward to it. Yeah. If you want to learn more about the podcast or check out any of the topics that we talked about, links to the things that we talked about, you can visit justshootitpod.com. You can follow the show at justshootitpod on Twitter. And me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And me at Smitey Pileg. And I haven't tweeted probably since we started this show. I think you tweet about your projects every once in a while. And they're oh, real yeah. good. <laughs> nice. My jokes are very funny, so enjoy those. But in the meantime, do us a favor. Rate us on iTunes. It's the best way to help promote the show. Keep us going. It's been a year, Oren. This will be, like I think, released on our year anniversary of the show. Wow. wow that's crazy. Congratulations, guys. Thank you. To that's think so we banked cool. all I love that 50 you do episodes. this. this is- this is really cool that we've, you guys do this. We've got some good that's episodes. 50 episodes. Well, no. I guess 34 episodes. 34. Yeah. Still, though. He had a kid. We work a lot. Yeah. You know. But that's, that's, that's amazing. 34. That's a real commitment. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm now, now I'm going to like listen to a bunch of them now, too. I'm excited. Oh, cool. Yeah. What's we'll your favorite some? episode, Warren? My favorite episode, aside from this, this one. This one. He's, um, he's good. We've had so many good ones. I think if you... I really like tidbits of like knowledge and useful things. Actually... You know, like we, we talk about interviewing and I think we've gotten better at it. We used to start with like, so tell us how you got into filmmaking and you get about an hour of really boring stuff. And then we get to their current projects and they get an hour of really good stuff. And I think recently we've started with like your most current project and then yeah, work yeah. backwards a little more Mark Maron style. And I think that mm. works that the works best better. because yeah. we it's like what you're saying. It's like we see where they got to and then we get the interesting details of how they got here. But we don't have to start through like every class they went to in film school, you know? Right, um, right, right. But anyway, so I think the really good tidbits are Matt Barber. He directs, like, TV narrative, TV, like, network, like, The 100 and uh, that zombie show, iZombie, and some other things like that. And he just talks about how he breaks down a script and figures out how to shoot it. 
which is oh, really interesting. Cool. I'll yeah. check that out. It, then, it, that, that was the one where I had like a eureka moment of like, oh, this is why we do the show. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. But well, all, that's interesting yeah. to me because I want to be doing more scripted stuff. And that's, that's it's such a different storytelling. Yeah. I think there's a lot of overlap, like a Venn diagram, sure. but then there's this whole other thing. I don't have a script. I don't have actors. Yeah. 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 But some to me, like my favorite part of the podcast is when people like you talk about like, we watch The Godfather and we see these cool shots and then we try to do these same shots and motifs and these things, not because I'm not interested in them from the art you know, perspective, more from the like, what can I do to make cool looking things and be more thoughtful about my my project as a filmmaker? And it's like, that, that's, that stuff is really useful. So I just really like when people are really concrete about things. And when we had Melissa Hunter, who's more of like a writer actor, she talked to us about how to pitch shows in that episode. Ooh. You, she just like, inst- she can say like five sentences and you're like, I want to buy that show. Yeah, yeah you, you know, her, her pilot uh, got picked up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome. Well, there you go. Yeah. So. Anyway, Melissa Hunter, Matt Barber. I will check those out. Check those out. Thank you so much for hanging out, Abby. Thank and you thank guys for you, having me, Eric, for what editing this experience. episode. Yes, and thanks, Eric um, for the for the rhubarb. Yeah, hi, my <laughs> wife. To Chrissy. Yeah, killer. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 And maybe film takeout when I said film school one hundred and one after I said what David Gelb's theory on the show is <laughs> no come on i think that's great that, that's that, what our fun, show is about that's your is point is that it, it was fundamental that stuff though. accessible yeah hero's journey fundamentals that that's a-okay to say yeah.